0: page 1134 of your Bibles. We're reading from Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do To keep your Bibles open, uh, if you've got them handy at that passage. Beginning of um, Romans 8 is, uh, is a sort of a, a big bang of a passage. These verses we're looking at, um, Romans 1 to 4, um, they're like the big bang. I gather the big bang was supposed to have started about 14 billion years ago. This is only Wikipedia. Someone will tell me better later, I'm sure. Um, But it starts, the idea is this singularity, this hugely dense bit of matter that then explodes out and the whole created universe flows from that one tiny singularity, which is what this is supposed to be showing, I think. And this little passage in Romans is rather like that. It's a singularity. It is a very, very, very dense few verses. But in it is the whole gospel. Everything that God has done for us is summed up in these tiny, tiny passage of just a few verses. It's, it's quite extraordinary. And it's, the language is very compressed, which is why we have that little footnote, even to explain uh, what's happening uh, in these verses uh, just now. Paul's using very, very, very uh, compressed language. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Um, In fact, it might help if you you listen to Phil's sermon on Romans 7, if you didn't hear that, because he talks a little bit more about the use of Paul's language as he goes into this passage. So, it's a little bit of a singularity, these few verses, but the great advantage of that means that we can almost study it in isolation. These few verses just stand on their own and just tell us some great truths. So that's what we're going to do uh, this morning. We're just going to focus on these few verses, and I want to look at in particular what Paul means uh, when he says we face no condemnation, what he means when he says we're in Christ Jesus, and what it means to live by the Spirit. And as we look at those three, uh, we'll touch on the other verses as well, and, and we'll unpack those. So firstly, what does Paul mean when he writes that for us there is no condemnation? Well, almost as an aside really, what I kind of want to say to start off with is that this first makes no sense at all if you don't think there's any condemnation anyway. Uh, I mean, that frankly is just plain wrong, but it is a truth that we seem to struggle with, don't we, nowadays uh, in our society the fact that there could be any condemnation for anybody. This is, um, this is Michelangelo's huge painting in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Uh, so it's, you know, Renaissance, 1600s. Um, I don't think folk in those days had any problem understanding the idea that there would be a judgment day and that some people are saved and some people aren't. But we're much less easy with that, I think, now, aren't we? just now we were singing verses from roman uh, from john 3:16 in the uh, in the chorus but a couple of verses later john 3:18 jesus is this he says whoever believes in me is not condemned but whoever does not believe in me stands already condemned so as we go into this passage it's great Mistake to think, well, there isn't any condemnation anyway. And Paul explains the basis for that condemnation in this passage. So verse four, have a look at that. He says he talks about the righteous requirement of the law. And Phil said the other week how Jesus sums that up, that righteous requirement simply being it's a matter of loving God with everything you've got. That's the righteous requirement of the law that we should love God absolutely. But we don't, do we? Human beings don't. You and I don't. Uh, in fact, actually, we don't even want to most of the time. And that, that lack of love is what leads to condemnation. It leads to our separation from God. It leads to death. And it is an uncomfortable topic And I know if I'm talking to folk uh, at work or socially or whatever, and you get onto this sort of area of judgment, it feels embarrassing, you get a little bit hot under the collar, Uh, you begin to sound bigoted, you begin to sound dogmatic, and and it's difficult. But the Bible is clear. The sheep are separated from the goats, the weeds from the wheat. But without that message, Paul's great news here would be pointless, isn't it? That there is no condemnation and that is Paul's focus that's what we're going to be looking at the great news that we don't need to face that condemnation because for the believer we are secure in Christ so let's move on to the good news talking of good news well maybe not I don't know there was a famous incident 1990 Uh, when Margaret Thatcher was dealing with Jacques Delors in the EU. um, Unusually, we seem to be having trouble in Europe. And uh, (laughs) Jacques Delors was the, the, the commissioner or whatever at the time. And he was proposing that there should be three powers moved back into Brussels. So the UK would lose certain national powers and they would move to Brussels. And uh, Margaret Thatcher in the House of Commons made a a famous speech and she said to Mr. Delor's proposals, no, Mr. DeLore, no, no, no. And you can imagine her doing it. You might think we could do with her now. But Paul is doing a bit of a Margaret Thatcher here. He's saying no, no, no. There is no condemnation that is guaranteed right now absolutely no condemnation. And he's saying it in those three words there, is, now, no. That's Paul's equivalent of Maggie's no, no, no. Is, now, no condemnation. Which is the great news. And that word is, says it's certain. See, Paul doesn't say, probably not any condemnation now we're probably all right he doesn't say there may be or there could be he says there is no condemnation he says what happened with jesus when he died on the cross and he rose again was completely effective at putting us right with god jesus died he rose again And our sin is dealt with. There's no doubt about it. And that is why we have the scriptures. Because we can read them. We can study them. We can see, as we've just heard Tim saying, we can see God working through the Bible. And see that Jesus has dealt with that problem once and for all. So that is, in verse 1, tells me that it is certain that we are not condemned. But the second no is the now, isn't it? There is now no condemnation. What Paul's saying is that the moment we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, we are secure. It's not something that comes in the future. We are already secure in Christ. We're not like a bunch of learner drivers. Do you remember that moment perhaps... The first moment you get in the car and the L plates are put on and it's so exciting. You can drive and you career off down the road. And uh, of course you're not really driving at all, are you? You're, you haven't passed yet. And you blunder along for some time before the L plates are taken off and you're really driving. And I think sometimes that's how we imagine our Christian life, don't we? I've become a Christian, but I'm still working it out. And when I get to heaven, if I'm lucky, God will peel off the old plates, and I'm away. But uh, Paul says it's not like that at all. There's nothing further you need to do. You are already secure in Christ, and that means we don't need to do anything else for our to avoid our condemnation. We don't need to do penance. We don't need to make merit. We don't need to make amends with God in any other way. All our sins been dealt with. Right here and now. No condemnation. I could just stop there, couldn't I? It's great. But there's one more no. Is now no. There we are, we've hit the no. No condemnation, it's absolute. Whatever is niggling you at the back of your brain, that you're thinking, oh dear, just can't sort that out. Keep going wrong. Something you feel really guilty about. Something that just keeps happening. However trivial, however serious, however embarrassing, sordid, shocking it might be, there is no condemnation. It's what John 3.18 said. When we believe in the name of God's one and only Son, we are not condemned, Jesus says, we have eternal life. Clear cut. I used to have a geography teacher who um, used to mark our homework in A's and B's and C's. So a C was, you know, you knew that was bad. A was really good, but he would never give me an A. I think he just hated me. So he'd give me a B, and if it was reasonably good, he'd give me a B plus. And if it was really good, a B plus plus. And on one occasion, I got B plus plus question mark plus. I can still see it written across the bottom of the homework. And I thought, just give me an A. He couldn't do it. Do you know, when I hand my homework in to God. It's not going to have B++ question mark plus on it, is it? It's just going to have an A. Big, solid A. And that's what we all have when we face God. Because that condemnation is not something we face at all. There is no condemnation. And that's just the start of these four verses. So much in just those few words. But let's move on to the next part of the sentence. Because he uses a slightly odd phrase. I think if I was writing this, I would say, well, there's no condemnations for Christians. Or there's no condemnation for people who've been baptized. Or perhaps if I was feeling very sound, I'd say there's no condemnation for conservative evangelicals. But Paul doesn't say that, does he? He says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's an incredibly loaded word. I just, I, you know, spend weeks really thinking about what this really means. Because it is there's so much richness through it. You know, all through scripture, the Bible uses different pictures to illustrate what this means. So in John, we have Jesus saying, just around the Last Supper, he says that he is the vine and we are the branches. Paul says that if we're believers, we're like a human body, and Jesus is our head, the same blood coursing through the whole body. Ephesians 5, the church is described as married to Christ. You and I married to the Lord Jesus. It's a very intimate relationship. When we trust in God, we become one with Jesus. If you looked at this vine, it's quite difficult to tell where the tree stops and the branches start. They're all in one together, combined. It's another illustration of that. Song of Solomon. I haven't looked at the Song of Solomon for a while. It's a famously uh, erotic love song sitting in the middle of the Old Testament. And a few years ago, I have a show of hands, does anybody remember... Coming to the session that was run here by a sex psychologist on Song of Solomon. Anybody remember that? Yes. I think you'd ever forget it if you were here. I've never seen the church hall so full. And what he was talking about was the sexual activity described in the Song of Solomon, in graphic detail with diagrams. Uh, there were a lot of folk there taking notes. You could hear pencils snapping all over the place. Baby boom followed shortly afterwards. It was embarrassingly intimate. And yet, you know, for centuries, that book, Song of Solomons, has also been understood as explaining and understanding our relationship with Christ. That intimate, embarrassing Relationship described in Song of Solomon's is also Song of Solomon, our relationship with Christ. There was a 12th century mystic, Bernard of Clairvaux, he founded the Cistercian Order. He was so carried away with this that he wrote 86 sermons on the first three verses of Song of Solomon. Now how about that for a sermon series? 86 sermons. But what Bernard was getting at was understanding this intimacy of our relationship of this phrase of in Christ. It is a marriage relationship. It's quite extraordinary. But that's all well and good, but how does that help me? All very nice to know I'm in Christ, but sort of so what? Well, we have to dive into the rest of this passage a little bit more. We look at verses three and four, and what they tell me is that Jesus obeys the law completely you see verse 3 it says the law was weakened by the flesh in other words us human beings our tendency to sin we just can't meet god's standards we can't love god as we should with everything that's going to flow on from that the only person who could was jesus god's own son the own son really important little word saying no this is this is part of god this is god walking on earth this is jesus god as man in the likeness of sinful flesh so just like you and me exposed to sin in the same way but within that life he loves god perfectly and lives a life of complete obedience so in that respect Jesus completely fulfills the law. He does what nobody else has ever done, of meeting the demands of the law. But the other thing that Jesus does is he pays the penalty for not obeying the law. So so he both obeys the law and he pays the penalty for not obeying it. And that's what you're seeing in verses 3 and 4. Jesus dies as a sin offering, a sacrifice, because that is how the law saw the damage caused by sin being repaired. So God, Jesus, completely fulfills the law. He loves God perfectly, and he pays the price of not loving God perfectly. Um, we, I don't think Simon James Morse is here, but he understands baseball. And I think the phrase would be to say that Jesus is covering all the bases. You know, Every option is dealt with. In Jesus. I know Simon's a great baseball fan. He could explain that phrase. But that's kind of what's happening here. The law has been completely fulfilled in Jesus. And that is why it is such great news for us. Because when we're in Christ, then the righteous demands of the law have been dealt with. It's impossible for God to condemn us. God could no more condemn you or me then he can condemn Jesus. Isn't that extraordinary? We have that same privilege when we stand before God. And there's no security anywhere else in the world outside that relationship. Nothing else offers that security in front of God. It's a great promise, and it's open to everybody. It doesn't matter what faith you are now. doesn't matter what background you've come from. doesn't matter what age, gender, or whatever. Anybody can just turn to Christ, and from that moment, we are secure. No condemnation, says Paul. Fantastic. No condemnation and something extra. We get to the end of the passage, and it's our last point. Because how does Paul end this passage? He says, no condemnation, instead there is life in the spirit. That's the end of verse 4, isn't it? Where Paul says, we don't live according to the flesh, but we live according to the Spirit. Now that's a sort of launch pad for what the rest of chapter seven is going to do. It's going to talk about what life in the Spirit uh, is. So we'll spend more time on that in the next week or so. Um, but we can note a couple of things today as we finish as we finish. And the first thing is that this is a statement of fact again. It's not a promise. It's not something that, you know, you will be filled by the Spirit or something will happen to you at some stage or the Spirit will gradually bubble up in you. It says, no, if we follow Jesus right now, we're not condemned and we also, we live by the Spirit. In other words, getting back to this idea of the vine, isn't it? We have God's Spirit in us. We have His breath in us. That vine has the same sap running through the branches as it does through the trunk. With the tree. And one other thing is very clear from that little end of that passage. That it's quite clear that Paul says that life in the spirit is different to the old life. We've moved from a life in the flesh to a life in the spirit. Something has changed in us. Now then. Half of you will hate Manchester United. The other half won't care. One of you will love them. We used to follow Manchester United when uh, Patrick was little. So still keep half an eye on them. And it's been extraordinary what's been going on there. Those of you who don't know the saga, they've had Jose Marino as manager and it was just awful to watch. Uh, uh, They were trying to play in a way. He was telling them how to play and everything was going wrong. They changed manager. Ole Solskjaer comes along and suddenly, well, they haven't lost a match since. Unless they lost yesterday, I don't think it is. They haven't lost a match since. I think they had eight wins in a row. It was a record running, record running run. <laughs> record breaking run uh, for Man U. Change of manager and a complete change in how that team uh, behaved. Now, somewhere in Manchester, I suspect there are some people comparing Oli Solskjaer with God, and that's not quite the point uh, at this point. But the point is that we've seen a change. And Paul's saying there is a similar change happening in us when we live by the Spirit. And we should look for change in our lives. And we ought to be saying to the Holy Spirit, how are you working in our lives? What is going to be different in my life? Uh, Peter writes about this, and he talks about being moved by the Spirit. And when he says being moved by the Spirit, he uses the word for the wind filling the sails of a ship. And suddenly the ship's moving to its destination, as it should do when the wind filled those sails. And without those sails, the boat goes nowhere. And maybe sort of kind of metaphorically... Some of us, and I include me in that, perhaps we just need to hoist the sails a bit more. Perhaps we need to set sail and allow the breath of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And David Watson writes about this and he says, you, you, you look for signs of the Spirit in your life. We should be doing that. We should be encouraging the Holy Spirit to work. What should we be looking for? There are familiar things. We should be looking for his fruit, shouldn't we? Appearing in our lives. We should be looking for love, joy, peace and so on. We should expect to see us using his gifts amongst us. We should see all the gifts at work. The teaching, the administration, the healing, speaking in tongues. All these things should be happening in amongst us as a fellowship. And we should be living out a life really very... Uh, With the same hallmarks of the New Testament church, shouldn't we? One marked by prayer, love, unity, all signs of the Spirit in the life of the early church. And as we move into Romans 7, we'll see that the Spirit will lead us to seek his will in our lives. Something we'll actively want to do. And we'll see him speaking to us through the Bible and through other people. Life in the Spirit will involve prayer. It will involve love, unity, and it will involve a desire to tell other people about Jesus. And we're going to see all those things as we move into chapter 7. And Martin Lloyd-Jones has a a rather aggressive quote when he goes up to someone and effectively says, Well, you say you've got God's Spirit in your life. Why are you like everybody else then? Eh? (laughs) not sure I'd like to have taken Martin Lloyd-Jones on, but that's the challenge, isn't it? Saying, are we hoisting the sails, if you like, to let the breath of the Holy Spirit work through our lives and see all these great things happening? Let me finish a bit. I'll finish with a short summary. Because these are great verses, aren't they? They're great verses summarizing the good news. They tell us there's no condemnation for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. And that is guaranteed now, absolutely, because we are secure in Christ. And that means we have a new life, a new life in his spirit that's going to be different, more exciting than anything else the world has to offer. Let's just pray as we finish. Father God, we just thank you so much for what you have done for us. Thank you that you have given us your spirit to live in us. And we just pray that we may, each day of our lives and each day of this week, know that truth more deeply, more really in our own lives, and help us to live for you. Amen.